0: Welcome to the Department of Justice Agency in Focus, sponsored by
1: Litos.
2: Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Alex Martinez, Vice President, Division Manager of Information Technologies at Litos Civil Group. Alex, good to have you in.
1: Great to be here, Tom.
2: Let's talk about the extent of data and other holdings, IT resources that you're dealing with at the Justice Department to get a sense of the field here.
1: Absolutely. When you think of the Department of Justice, you really have to appreciate complexity both in terms of the 65,000 end users in a department of that size, but also the complexity of the mission of the organization. And you're really spanning law enforcement, investigations, indictments, prosecution, incarceration, paroling. So you really have the entire span of, of what it means to have justice in the country. And so with that, you also get the scale and scope of the data that you're working with in supporting that mission. And so to give an example, um, you've got those 65,000 users, all the missions, all the data that comes with uh, running the department, but you've also got uh, the external data from litigation and the ability to to prepare the lawyers with that type of information. I Rest- guess
2: discovery probably produces truckloads. Well, it used to be truckloads of paper data. Now it's terabytes of A- Well, absolutely.
1: A- and that challenge has uh, really gotten even more so as our digital lives become more complex We deal in videos. We deal in in media. The types of the data, the areas that we have, uh, those all become larger and larger volumes when we're dealing with tens and hundreds of terabytes per case.
2: In fact, Justice Department people often cite that at conferences and so forth, that an average case file just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, partly because of imagery and video.
1: Absolutely. And we don't really see any any end to that or slowing down. In fact, we're seeing that accelerate uh, as we all become digital natives in our, in our personal lives.
2: All right. So what used to be megabytes is now terabytes or maybe petabytes. And the second question that comes up is how do you help them have visibility and knowledge of what they do have? All they know is one great big number of petabytes, but that doesn't really help you with navigating it.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it really speaks to you have to have the capacity to scale or burst the infrastructure. And so when you have this large influx of case or litigation data, you need to be able to to get your arms around it to be able to have access to understand that utility and quality. And so as you'd expect from a technology perspective, you're leveraging technologies like cloud, uh, both for storage, but it's really the speed. Um, It's it's the ability of how do you understand what you have there and are able to triage that. And so you're taking advantage of a lot of these uh, native capabilities that allow you to very quickly understand that depth. And really become foundational, and then you can understand. All right, what do we what do we actually want to do with it, and what are the other potential you know outcomes from uh, a domain perspective?
2: Is there some sort of a dashboard or front end or metadata presentation that can help people know what's what's in there, what's in their holdings?
1: Absolutely, and there's a number of tools, uh, really specific uh, in, in this area, uh, that are about understanding and finding where the things that you're most likely to understand information, right? What are the types of images? What are the searches that you have that are really relevant and germane uh, to the type of cases that you're doing? And so it's being able to take those things and let the machine do the work for you and really come back and say, here's the places that you you need to spend your time.
2: And what is data quality? And what does that mean? And how does that apply in day-to-day life if you're, say, doing, working with an organization that is oriented toward casework?
1: Well, it's really about understanding what is going to give the outcomes for the type of problems that you're solving, and particularly in justice, it's you know you're you're wanting to get either an insight or you want to make sure that you're not caught off guard and uh, being able to respond to that, and so it's it's being able to understand the breadth and make sure that you haven't missed that piece of insight and quality that's there, or that you have confidence that. Really, I, I know that that isn't in there, right? And so it's the absence of that information. And so the quality is really the confidence that you have, you know, based upon that discovery so that you can really build, whether it be a law enforcement case or are you building, you know, a, a litigation and you understand that your your arguments that you're making are going to hold.
2: There's two, I guess, broad mission areas here. One is the prosecution of cases themselves. That is to say the dealing of things that have to do with the public, the external, whether it's a Bureau of Prisons, they don't prosecute cases, but they handle prisoners and deal with that data. So that's the external facing, let's say. And then there's the internal operations of the department itself and deciding how to allocate resources and what programs are working and when are which are not. And then there's also the mandate, uh, both in law and in administrative initiatives, to do more with data-based decision-making. How can they get their arms around that? How do you help them understand how they can use data? How do they want to apply it both operationally and analytically?
1: You know, it's it's a great a great question. There's a number of different strategies. Uh, you know, one that I think is more interesting is the people strategy. And uh, a number of our data assets that you mentioned are locked up in these older legacy platforms. And so I think the analogy a lot of folks have used is, you know, data is the new oil. And, and so folks are trying to understand how do you mine for it If you extend that analogy, these old legacy systems, uh, they're really the dinosaur bones, right? They're the places that are going to become your oil fields. And so it's important, maybe counterintuitively, to spend your time on some of these older operational systems that have been up for a long period of time, uh, that really have a lot of data assets that the department has, and, and understand how you can talk to those teams and unlock that. Uh, data and then be able to to support the missions and really get an understanding of what do you have and how might you be better able to use it and really mine that data uh, for those type of purposes.
2: And I was wondering how chief data officers or data officers, whether they're the chief or not, how do they fit into all this picture and what kind of analytical quality do they bring?
1: Well, you know that's a great question, and obviously there's been you know some recent um, you know changes within the Department of Justice where we you know now have a, a chief data officer uh, with Mister. Klemovic who is um, also dual hatted as a CIO and really re- sure. you know, respects the the authority of that position. In addition, um, the department recently released uh, a data strategy uh, in February, and it really kind of outlines. You know, what are those approaches both at a department level, but then also with a number of the uh, federal law enforcement agencies uh, that are part there. And it it, uh, describes that partnership of the ecosystem and the thoughtfulness in terms of what are the goals that justice is focused on to really enable the data sharing um, and then respect the items like data retention, uh, the criticality of privacy, security, confidentiality, uh, when you're dealing with the type of data that comes from these sort of missions.
2: And like a lot of large departments, justice is also dealing, you know, in the case of law enforcement or prisons, whatever it might be, with non-federal entities. I think EPA is the same way. And how does that all figure in, that is to say, whose data is it and how can they cooperate and interoperate yet protect the sovereignty, if you will, of those non-federal entities?
1: That's absolutely right, and in, in terms of the complexity of, of that ecosystem, and you know how justice is looking at this is really the necessary building blocks, and a strong focus on identity, credential access management, the ICAM piece that really allows you to credential your partners. Really, your you know if you think of those as the supply chain uh, that you interact with on your data side, and so that's the first building block to really understand privacy by design. Right? How do you ensure that? data from these partners stays within the, the legislative missions that it's allowed to and uh, the ability to make sure that the right information is shared, um, but no, no more than that, right, within the statutes that uh, we all have to work within.
2: All right, we're going to take a short break here. My guest today is Alex Martinez, Vice President, Division Manager of Information Technology at the Litos Civil Group. I'm Tom Temen on Agency in Focus, sponsored by Lidos on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
0: At Lidos, we have supported the U.S. Department of Justice for more than 40 years with unwavering commitment. The department takes on the toughest public safety and law enforcement challenges, and they don't take risks when it comes to technology and legal expertise. From enterprise IT modernization and litigation support to strategic communications and cybersecurity, justice counts on Lidos to deliver innovative solutions. Learn more about our shared mission at Lidos.com DOJ.
2: Welcome back to Agency in Focus, sponsored by Lydos. here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is Alex Martinez, Vice President, Division Manager of Information Technology at the Lydos Civil Group. I'm Tom Temin. And Alex, let's talk about in this segment the idea of contemporary core IT services. That's always a moving target, but somehow it feels like we have been through an era of great change in what constitutes core IT that supports all of this data we talked about earlier. Describe contemporary core IT services. What does it look like these days?
1: That's a great point, and it does feel like, um, you know, there's a fair amount of inflection and change in how we look at these. You know, contemporary core IT services are fully managed services. And, you know, what I I mean by that is uh, it really requires capital E engineering work uh, to really enable the reliability and the resiliency of those services uh, going forward. And, you know, there was a time in kind of an operational maintenance mindset where core IT was treated as drudgery. uh, And it really was reflected, I think, in some of the teams that supported uh, those type of services. And there was a lower talent density, um, you know, in the teams that were in the core IT area. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about cloud as, you know, a key part of the new core IT services. But I think there's also a learning from, you know, how we got to cloud in terms of what are the principles uh, that enable contemporary core IT services that we should expect from all of those. And it really is automation, the ability to reduce the toil, um, the type of manual uh, drudgery that's out there. Um, and that then you know, reduces the human errors, and it really allows us to scale and have reliability and reliance. And so when we think about you know, cloud storage, when we think of um, you know, managed services in terms of identity credential, uh, our managed network, our software-defined networks, our software-defined infrastructure – We've really leveraged uh, this engineered, automated service that has an expectation of reliability and resiliency uh, that you know we really have only started to see in the federal space from leveraging uh, you know some of these cloud-type primitives, and so I think cloud's important. It's a piece of it, but it's the learning about how do we apply these to all the key tenants of a core service.
2: So in terms of hardware, we no longer have people mounting disk packs and that kind of thing and putting tapes on machines and starting up and closing down and moving servers around. And on the services side, there's get there's a getting away from the manual typing in of directory services and that kind of thing that uh, that is drudgery and that you can learn in a couple of weeks how to do. And so it's a kind of low level work. And... Which gets to the point of not just use of cloud, but optimizing the agency's own data centers. Because I think it's fair to say, and would you agree, that those aren't going away, but they do have to be brought up so that they can work in tandem with cloud and the service-oriented kind of look at all of this.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right in in terms of you have you know, some of these long-running assets and you have uh, these things that are going to be with us for a period of time. Uh, However, we want to make sure that we're able to access them. We have the identity credentials. uh, We have the ability to have the security and monitoring uh, that really uh, takes a look in cross cuts, um, you know, where the applications, where the infrastructure is. Uh, in there. And so that's a that's a critical component is the pervasiveness of these core IT services. They're, they're not just one system. They're not one data center. They're not one cloud provider. It's ability to have the visibility and the telemetry across your entire environment.
2: And Justice, no less than any other large department, does have big legacy applications that they still rely on, both the application, the logic itself, and the data behind it. How do you get those to fit into a contemporized and modernized I.T.
1: core infrastructure setup. You know, that's a great, great perspective. And there's really a couple of strategies um, that you can really that you can apply to those. Uh, You know, the first of which that, you know, you may have heard of is really the strangler pattern, which is this this uh, concept that um, you're not going to go ahead and tackle a modernization, a big bang activity uh, to be able to take a look at these legacies. But you want to be able to expose them, create some facades, that allow you to interact in this new fabric of, you know, whether it be services or serverless type technology um, and, and have those interconnects that's possible. And so it's being able to identify uh, an approach like that where you're not addressing the whole entire piece um, in, a, in a long effort, but you're getting an impact, you're enabling those, and you're really creating a fabric uh, in which you can interact with and then apply some of these more advanced techniques to.
2: Because some of these applications have generated and continue to generate data, that we talked about earlier, that the agency would still need. So I imagine a lot of your work with Justice relies on or points to the creation of an API layer that can, in a sense, repurpose that data, but letting it live as it has lived in the legacy system.
1: Yeah, that's right, and you know it's it's almost become a four-letter word. But mainframes, right? They're they're out there, and and justice, like many other departments, certainly has those. And while there's you know a tremendous push to modernize those for for other advantages, um, there's information and there's things that we can do today from an analytics perspective uh, that we can unlock from those type of areas through APIs, where you're not interacting directly with these technologies, uh, but you're able to then extract the information across it, um, and even capabilities like. Uh, robotic process automation where you're able to re- basically create an API-like interface to a system um, you know where you're actually having to interact with the screens and other areas without being able to go in there and make major changes to applications that have, in many cases, successfully been running for 15 to 20 years.
2: Sure. And what about the redoing of logic that might be needed for some of those applications? Is there a point at which you say, well, Let's keep redoing the old C language, or even earlier languages, in that COBOL, as the case might be. Or does there come a point when your advice to them is, let's refactor this, let's extract the logic somehow and re-render it in modern, contemporary programming?
1: You know, it's it's always a trade-off to take a look, and I think one of the things that is certainly driving uh, the need to be more aggressive in that. Is uh, we don't have a lot of cobalt and Fortran developers, you know, uh, available in the ecosystem, and they're not mo- not making new ones at universities. You know, this is a problem that we've been aware of for a number of years. Uh, but we really are seeing those folks that are saying, "Yeah, I'm retiring, and I'm I'm not going to come back." And so it really becomes a a people or a capital human capital challenge. Uh, that in some ways more than the applications themselves. And so in those particular cases, you're you're really not given a choice. Uh, You're gonna have to be able to go do that. I I think one of the things that is important when you embark upon that is to take a step back and really reimagine and think, so what was the problem we were actually trying to solve uh, originally when we tackled these systems and being able to um, look at that, get back with your end users and say, our goal isn't to go harvest the logic from these mainframes and create a new modern version of it in a, you know, in a new language that we have a lot of folks that we can apply to it. It's understanding, well, what was the problem? And perhaps the answer is, you know, we can use a platform that we already have. Uh, We can repurpose something um, from an interface perspective that we don't even really have to rebuild the whole application from. And those are the opportunities I think drive a lot of value. Um, in this in these scenarios. All right.
2: Good place to take a break. And we will pause now. My guest today is Alex Martinez, Vice President and Division Manager of Information Technology at the Lidos Civil Group. I'm Tom Temin on Agency in Focus sponsored by Lidos here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
0: At Lidos, we have supported the U.S. Department of Justice for more than 40 years with unwavering commitment. The department takes on the toughest public safety and law enforcement challenges, and they don't take risks when it comes to technology and legal expertise. From enterprise IT modernization and litigation support to strategic communications and cybersecurity, justice counts on Lidos to deliver innovative solutions. Learn more about our shared mission at Lidos.com DOJ.
2: Welcome back to Agency in Focus, sponsored by Lidos on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is Alex Martinez, Vice President and Division Manager of Information Technology at the Lidos Civil Group. I'm Tom Temin, And Alex, we've talked about data. We've talked about the core infrastructure needed to make use of that data, a little bit about the analytic tools. Let's talk about the user and how that Justice Department user, whether he's at the BOP or in the prosecutor's office, you know, opposite ends of the intake and out- take uh, Spectrum there in dealing with justice. What are some of the issues with presentation and user interface?
1: Well, absolutely. And I think you you covered it well is you have such a diverse user base and many of those users are uh, mobile all the time, right? In terms of, you know, the field agents across the country, uh, in terms of each of these different users. And so, well, the important piece is to understand and map out how is that end user interacting you know with the services and a lot of times that's happening on a mobile device or they would prefer it to happen on their mobile device and and not fire up a laptop in a in a in a car or, or on the side uh, when they're able to do some sort of interdiction and when we we talk about it, it's mapping out you know how many steps does it take for an end user to get to a platform through their mobile device and we really have to make sure we get the whole ecosystem we have to understand um you know they had to get to vpn they had to get access to their their physical device Um, They had to be able to uh, have their email and other activities. So it's not just, you know, that application maybe that our, you know, our agile developers are focused on. It's what is that whole user experience till they get to the point where they can actually accomplish why they had to, you know, pick up a device and interact with IT. And so it's mapping that out.
2: Yeah, I guess in this mobile phone, smartphone era, which has been very much embraced by agents and FBI agents and so on, the advent of FirstNet and the high speed first responder competing networks that compete with firstnet there's the implication that all of this data will be instantly available over these high priority networks in real command or emergency situations and i guess that probably adds intensity to the need to have that good seamless reach back without too many bottlenecks
1: well that's right and and certainly things uh, such as firstnet right provide us the uh, the potential capability where when we're in a critical Uh, incident, we're going to have more reliable access to it. Um, And so that's one piece of it. But now it's really incumbent on the rest of that provider ecosystem to say, all right, now that I have access and I have the high speed, what can I really do with it? And, um, you know, am I in a one-hand operation, right, where I I don't have the luxury of being able to interact and kind of type out like perhaps you and I do uh, in our personal lives? And so have we thought through what are what those end users are doing in a law enforcement type capacity, and making sure that uh, the end user interaction, you know, matches that, and we're taking advantage of you know the identity and the other biometric areas to to be able to to further improve that end user experience.
2: So multi-factor authentication with biometrics might be part of it. I imagine even voice recognition might come into it.
1: Yeah, and I think so. And and what we're seeing, you know. Uh, really in the early stages, though, is, is being able to combine all these factors together to get probabilistic access. You know, how do you hold your mobile device, how your voice, the, the, the access, your location? These are all really our digital footprints. And so if we, you know, take a look at How those come together that really helps us find better ways of understanding that this really is the person who's executing this mission with a higher level of confidence.
2: Sure, because cybersecurity is always a consideration in any, especially in mobile applications. And what are some of the ways you're looking at that?
1: Well, I think we've done a a really large push on our endpoints in getting visibility um, from a security perspective and in a CDM and a lot of the efforts around that. And really, what it comes to now is. We've invested in it. We're using a lot of the compute cycle on these mobile devices, and we're logging a lot of this data. But so how do we now understand um, more effectively what's happening from an end-user perspective, and how can we do um, types of analytics across that type of data uh, to really be underst- understand the usability, uh, the telemetry, what that user's experienced, and then is that within the parameters of what normal looks like for that end-user, so that we can make security decisions that are more behavioral rather than um, pure uh, procedural or compliance type things that, you know, perhaps we've been doing for the last, you know, 30 to 40 years.
2: And I guess the flip side of that is there are still people that sit at desktop PCs, computers, and is there any work being done or are you doing work to enhance that experience from what it, because in some ways it hasn't changed much since the late 90s, the desktop experience, but I imagine there's a lot of productivity gains, fast access and so forth that, that are available to those people.
1: Well, that's right, and it's really about the office of the future. We're going to much more of an environment where you're able to take a device and you may go to an assigned desk, right? You may not have a, a desk that an office that you have any every day, and so it's the ability uh, that you have a fair amount of standardization across how do you display uh, the peripherals that you have so that you're not spending your time setting up your system, uh, but it's able to effectively connect to it. And then, you know, even for our office workers that may be going to their office there uh, every day, they're working on an application, uh, they're, they're inputting data, uh, but then they're going home and, you know, they, they get that call like we all do that something didn't quite go as it needs to. And is that same information available immediately on their mobile device um, so that they can go back and forth without having to either fire up their laptop and get on VPN or go back into the office? And so I think... Even in our office workers, we're seeing mobility is more and more just a, a first order tenant of, of that experience that we have to provide.
2: And very quickly, I get the sense that a lot of this is backed up by new agile development methodologies.
1: You're absolutely right. And the thinking around agile is, is really matured very quickly. And it's really all about the end user experience. And so I've seen a lot of really good tests. Or, are you doing good agile? I think everyone kind of knows what that term is now, but it's really about. Um, are we starting with real end users, and then are we able to deploy capability frequently to those end users to make sure we learn something from them when we keep them at the center?
2: All right. I want to thank today's guest, Alex Martinez, Vice President, Division Manager of Information Technology at the Leidos Civil Group. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Great. Thank you, Tom.
2: I'm Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Agency in Focus.
0: Thank you for listening to Department of Justice Agency in Focus, sponsored
2: by Lidos on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.